That was a really good song, whatever the name of it is. It sounded great. Thank you, Priscilla. Good morning to everyone. Uh, some of you, welcome back from vacation. And uh, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, I have bulletin in front of me. And uh, while we do have most of our uh, ministries on, on hold, uh, they are uh, starting here pretty soon. Uh, women's ministries are still on break. Um, the big one here is, is Awana, uh, Awana Clubs. And uh, Priscilla Meyer, that I just played the piano, is um, looking for volunteers for Awana. And so if you are interested in, in uh, listening to verses or, or leading a group, please talk to her. Uh, this is beginning August the 26th, and it goes on through pretty much the school year. So uh, every Wednesday at, at 6 p.m. from 6 to about 8 p.m. or so, uh, the children meet here at the church. Actually, the new building this year, right? I think, and they, uh, they get to know more about Jesus, so that's always a, a good thing. Uh, the men also have, we also have our Triple B coming up. Uh, triple B stands for Bibles, Beef, and Brew. Uh, that'll be on a Saturday, August the 26th. So, men, if you're in here, and if you haven't made it to one of those, you're missing out. It's really good. Um, so, with that, so I'm going to be reading the uh, book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. You can follow if you want or open your Bibles or whatever. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Excuse me. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And since his sacrifice was perfect and human, uh, it can accomplish completely our salvation. So let's pray before we have a time of worship. Uh, Father, we thank you this morning uh, for the opportunity to come together as your body and worship you and be encouraged by the teaching of your word. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we, we thank you for keeping us and uh, we pray for those that are out uh, traveling, uh, those that are homesick. Uh, we pray that you be with them as well. Ooh. And uh, we just ask that we, your name would be glorified this morning and praised. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you all stand with us for a time of worship?
is my firm foundation the rock on which I stand when everything around me is shaken I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus cause he's never let me down he's faithful So why would he fail now? He won't. He won't. I've still got joy in chaos. I've got peace that makes no sense. So I won't be
Good morning. morning. Hope you all are doing well. Children, you guys, well, actually, I'm going to make a happy announcement. It's been a busy couple of weeks for the Meyer family. We have a son that got married a week ago Saturday, and uh, our first grandbaby was born yesterday out in Lubbock, uh, Nicholas David Meyer, and he's kind of chubby, which is not to be unexpected, 8 pounds, 13 ounces, and 22 inches. So in Meyer proportions even. So, kids, now you can go. That's a happy announcement I wanted you all to hear as well. It's a children's church. So the uh, explorers are over here still, right? That's the, that sign is on the door and it's correct. And the adventurers are going through the bank there. Um, yeah, so this may not be such a happy Sunday for some of you all, though. Is this like when school starts next week? 
for we've been homeschooling so long. I have no idea when school starts for anybody. Is that that correct? So everybody's getting their last vacations in. Uh, so, but we're going to pick up. If you weren't here last week uh, when Sean was here, my friend uh, came to fill in for me the day after uh, the wedding. We, uh, you ought to go listen to that message. One of the advantages here about the body and the way that it's supposed to function. Um, I was blessed by it. I don't normally get to hear my friends when they come to speak because I'm usually gone. So that was a unique blessing, uh, one which I hope to replicate uh, at some point in the future, to have them come when uh, I'm not on fire or trying to staunch bleeding in somebody, some emergency somewhere or something that I have to be gone for um, because it's a blessing to me. So I know it will be a blessing to you if you go back and listen to it. Uh, but we're going to pick up in First Peter uh, this, uh, this morning, and First uh, Peter is a unique book uh, in that uh, there's not, it's like you don't get a lot of the themes repeated, right, that we get in Pauline literature. Paul wrote a good portion of the epistolary literature, his letters in the New Testament, and so you can recognize certain things. But Peter, Peter is unique in the way that he phrases things and uses his language, uh, but there's some, there's some overlap, certainly, uh, in our identity. Uh, Peter makes it very, very clear that we are special, right? And I made this comment to somebody, however, this last week, and that was that most believers waste too much time trying to figure out how they're more special than other believers. As believers, we are special. We're unique. We have a purpose in this world. You do not need to waste a lot of time in trying to be God's favorite child, you understand the distinction there? Um, you need to embrace the choiceness that he's given you, the specialness that he's given you, understanding that you're an alien in the world. You're weirdos. Not in a bad way, but we're weird, okay? We keep the Bible weird. We are unique. We have a unique purpose that nobody else has in the world, and we should expect not to be necessarily understood in the world, okay? Um, I hope I'm not the only one in the room for whom that is comforting, right? That explains a lot in my life. Oh, okay. It's like when I tell people that I was hit by a car when I was five, you know, they go, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You were in a coma for how long? Mm. Yeah. Same thing, right? Our identity is in Christ. If your identity is not in Christ, that's going to look foreign. Um, and so we have this purpose. We have this blessing. We have this identity. We are able to live our lives fearlessly, which we'll get to talking about in this passage. We have a lot of blessings. We have temporal blessings. That means we have them right now. Uh, we have the body of Christ among whom we worship and minister and serve and love. Uh, we also have an inheritance that is coming in the future that's already ready and reserved for us. We have opportunities to live life in ways that are not available to other people. We have obligations uh, we have obligations, which are important to understand. Uh, obligation is not a dirty word. Obligation is uh, a, a statement of clarity, right? It's a statement of clarity. What are the things that I need to prioritize in my life? My obligations. Uh, those are not established by other humans. They're not established by governments or corporate structures. They're established by God in our lives. So we have an obligation to love each other, to live in a sacrificial way towards other members of the body of Christ in particular, 
uh, and certainly we can make application to other human relationships, and, and it does, certainly within marriages and parent-child relationships, but to love each other from the heart, to long for the word, those things go hand in hand, because I can't simply say that I love somebody without knowing how it is that I am to obey Christ in how I treat other people, right? Because if I base whether I'm being loving to somebody on whether they smile at what I'm doing or not, I will be in danger of having not loved them at all. So I have to understand what the Word says. I have to understand what the Word says. This is how I love my wife. This is how I love my children. This is how I love others. So we want to long for that. And we need to choose to do that. And then Peter spends a lot more time, and we could make some observations about why that's necessary, but a lot more time on the third obligation, which is to keep our behavior excellent uh, among the Gentiles, among the nations. Um, I won't speculate further. We spent a lot of time on that, but it's the thing that we struggle with, I think, as the church. Um, He's talked about that to obey the divinely instituted structures. Uh, government, the workplace, the family, marriage, uh, were those things. Essentially doing what is right in every context that God has established for us to exist in, in the world around us. Doing what is right, but doing it without fear. Fear of people, fear of the world around us, uh, even when it involves suffering. God has purposed a unique place for us in relationship to suffering. Because I don't know if you've you've noticed, (laughs) but the world around us is doing everything that they can to avoid every instance of suffering that they possibly can, individually, right? Even if that means inflicting suffering on other people. (laughs) They're trying to avoid the sensation of suffering themselves. The distinction is, is that we are to embrace the sensation of suffering. We're supposed to embrace the sensation of suffering. We're supposed to embrace the sensation of suffering. Nobody smiles, even the third time. Nobody says, Mary, did you smile, Mary? Mary? I didn't see Mary. Mary smiles. Mary smiles a lot, though, so I'm never sure what the smile means. Okay, I'm just kidding, Mary. All right. We're supposed to embrace the sensation of suffering in our lives. That is the nature of one of the characteristic elements of our lives here. And it is something that the world considers dichotomous. How can you embrace that sensation? That's a terrible sensation. Most people spend their lives trying to avoid that sensation in its entirety. Uh, And it... (laughs) Frankly, it ends up in a lot of the problems that we see in the world, right? You see people who do not value human life. This is at its core because they see other human life, particularly the bearing of other human life, as an instance of suffering. And God never says it's not going to involve suffering. He says to embrace the sensation of suffering and understand its purpose in your lives. This is why people are telling vast quantities of other people not to get married. Life is going to suck if you do that. You're going to suffer. Yes, Scripture says you are going to suffer in ways that you wouldn't otherwise. 
None of the men just said amen. None of the women did either, but, you know. You're going to suffer in ways that you wouldn't suffer otherwise. It is important that we understand that that sensation is something that we embrace, not something that we avoid at all costs. There are some clarifications, right? But we're to suffer fearlessly. And that brings us to where we, where we are in chapter 3. It is better. Verse 17 of chapter 3, it is better. If God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. It is better. It's of a higher rank, more honorable. Provides greater benefit. You can understand it that way. It's better. It's better if you do this. Um, A lot of theologies really don't allow for the concept of better in a subjective sense. There is and there isn't for them. If you believe in an absolute particular determinism of everything, all you have is what is. But there is a choice presented in this passage, and that is that it is better to suffer for doing what is right. You gain a, a better, a greater benefit to suffer for doing what is right. That is a a cognitive dissonance for us, right? Because we actually believe that we should not suffer for doing what is right, don't we? Should doesn't really come into the equation. Maybe you shouldn't, but you're going to. We're going to suffer for doing what is right in this world. We're the weird ones. We're the aliens. We're the ones that have different expectations on what this world is designed to, be, to deal with. It does good things for us. But the, the comparative element is important because Peter indicates that it is superior, the benefit is superior for suffering for doing what is, is right, and that's true. He does not say that there is actually no good done in your life for suffering for, what is doing, for doing what is wrong. That's the nature of the comparative. It's better, but y'all know a whole lot of people that don't suffer for doing what is wrong, right? Does that do good things in their lives? No. Nope. If God doesn't discipline you when you do something that's wrong, that's not good in your life. If Criminals just have free reign for doing what is wrong and nothing ever, no consequences are ever applied, no discipline is ever applied, then their lives are worse. It is important, both. Both things do good, but it is better to suffer for doing what is right. That is the choice that we should make because one is better, one is better because it emulates Christ's example. Right, so if you, if you asked certain participants in history about Jesus, right, if you asked the Roman government and you said, did Jesus of Nazareth commit a crime, what would they say? Well, one of them would say, I find no guilt in the man. I think Caesar might have a different opinion. The Jews 
which John uses a code word for the enemies of Christ. It's not all the Jews, but the Jewish leadership that were opposed to him would say, yes, he is a criminal and a blasphemer. Christ was none of those things, but he suffered for doing what was right, for obedience to his Father, for perfect submission. And that is why it's better for us to suffer for doing what is right. Now, uh, I can tell you that. I can tell you that. But some of y'all will insist on engaging with the electric fence yourselves. That's okay. It'll still do good in your life. I'm telling you what is right to emulate Christ's example, to suffer for doing what is right. It is better. Here's how we know that. For Christ, or you could just say because Christ also died for sins once. Your translation may say once for all. The word is hapax. Um, you may have heard, if you've said in, on my teaching here and there, we talk about a, a word that is in Scripture just one time, and we call that a hapax legomeno, spoken once. I mean, there's no other instances in which this took place. There's no other instances in which the word occurs. There are no other instances in which this took place. No one else did it after or before. No one else did it again. Christ didn't do it again. He died once, once. He suffered once for all, everyone, the just or the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, there's an argumentation that goes on. Did Christ die for everyone? Um, we teach at El Paso Bible Church what is called an unlimited atonement, that Christ did, in fact, pay the penalty for the sin of the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also those of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. I don't, I know people that don't understand that verse, but I know of nobody who has a legitimate disagreement there. This doesn't disagree. Christ the righteous died for the unrighteous. You don't actually have to add all there, do you? How many have sinned? All have sinned. The righteous for the unrighteous. His sacrifice was unique once for all who were not righteous. So in other words, to teach something other than his sacrifice was for all is to actually say biblically that some people didn't need it. That somebody wasn't unrighteous. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says everybody is unrighteous. It says one righteous man died for the, all the unrighteous ones and all the unrighteousness. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. For this purpose so that he would or so that he might bring us to God. The word there is, is actually hupago. It means to lead us there. He demonstrated and revealed the, the way, and he provided the means by which we could do it, all of the above. He was the one that did that for us. He did that so that he would bring us to God to reconcile us to him 
having been put to death in the flesh. His body actually died. He, he stopped breathing. His brain function ceased. Uh, it didn't take very long in the early church for people to start disagreeing with that idea that he didn't really die or that he wasn't really God at the time he really died. All of these things uh, that Scripture, you don't find in Scripture. Scripture says that he died in the flesh. He died. This is um, any number of her- any number of heresies are dealt with with that. But he died. But made alive by means of the Spirit. That's a dative there. It says in the Spirit. Uh, the dative case in Greek refers to a few different things. It can be a location, like I'm in the church building. That's a dative. I'm here. I'm in. But oftentimes it means agency or instrument, right? So he was made alive by means of the Spirit. This is important. I know it doesn't. I know some of y'all don't believe me when I say something is important, and I'm talking about cases of nouns because y'all are English speakers and you don't care about cases and nouns. You just feel your language. Oh, whatever. Okay. The dative case is important. It's an instrumentation, right? Um, the dative, you guys who, who, who are kind of firearms enthusiasts, I know we have a few, right? You get irritated when people say, the gun killed that man. Well, a dative case would help us a lot. The man killed that man by means of the firearm. See how nice that is? Clarifies the whole situation. Christ was made alive by means of the Spirit because he actually died in the flesh. There was nothing in that flesh that was going to rise itself back up. Flesh doesn't do that. He was made alive by means of the Spirit. after he suffered, the greatest suffering that he could suffer. He's the example so that he could accomplish righteousness and submission to the Father so that he could love. I I don't necessarily, I don't feel like I need to tell you all this about the suffering, right? But we should read some passages that are familiar. Isaiah 52, 14, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. If you looked at him in the midst of his suffering, you would comparatively say, no one has suffered the way he has suffered. No one has been marred the way that he has been. I am standing before you literally as somebody who has had holes cut in his face by accidents. Had to have my whole face sewn back together Broken, cut, slashed, broken. The whole left side of my body is just bubble yum and rubber bands, guys. I'm pretty beat up. But even on my worst day, it was nothing like that. Marred more than any man. Isaiah 53, 3 to 5. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Is it still true that suffering for doing what is right is better when your suffering looks like that? Scripture says yes. That means that you need to say yes is what that means. Some pastors are funny about that. They don't like to tell you what to think. I want you to think, but there are certain things that I need to tell you what you need to change your thinking to, and this is one of them. You have not suffered like this, so I can legitimately tell you that no matter what you are suffering for doing what is right, it is better because this example says so. And if you don't think that, you need to repent of it. You need to change your mind today. You need to change. He was put to death. He was made alive by means of the Spirit. It's important that we understand what that dative means there because it's used again in verse 19. By means of which, or in which, also, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. I've heard some really exciting explanations for what that means. Not exciting in the best possible way or most appropriate hermeneutic way, but exciting nonetheless. If you take it as a location, you've got a problem, Right? The dative, dative, remember, it's location oftentimes, but also agency. Either he went to the place where those spirits were and preached to them, or he did it by means of the spirit. So the datives there are by means of their agency instrument. We have no record, no record of a pre-incarnate Christ going and speaking to these spirits himself bodily, right? It's by means of the Spirit, and I'm going to, we'll talk about that some more. Um, I, I do think when we take this and Second Peter talks about the days of Noah, um, I, think that, I think it is referring to that, Noah's generation, and that these spirits that are talking about, they are now in prison, but they are Noah's generation to whom he preached and was a preacher of righteousness, uh, and that, all, that comes up. I, we're not preaching Genesis. We're not teaching Genesis, right? But I do take this to be, uh, when we go back to Genesis 6, everybody familiar with the, the concept of the Nephilim, Genesis 6? The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and went into them 
Um, I do think that that's who these are. I do take them to be angelic beings or beings in possession of angelic DNA. We might call a hybrid. And Peter refers to Noah in 2 Peter as the, the preacher of righteousness to his generation. The righteousness of Christ. Which he preached the only way that he could preach righteousness. Who is, our, who is righteousness, by the way? It's the Son of God, right? It's Jesus Christ. The righteous for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. Noah preached by that spirit of Christ, the spirit of righteousness, which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The spirits who are now in prison, who were not then in prison, under guard. That, by the way, that isn't a normal way of talking about humanity. In the Old Testament, when humans die, they go to Sheol, the place of the dead, the grave, you might say. That's how they understood that. Sheol, they were dead. Awaiting resurrection, certainly, but dead. Uh, these are spirits that are currently, as of Peter's writing, imprisoned and under guard. Um, that same terminology, by the way, is used of Satan himself. Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Now, if you understand Revelation, you know that Satan is not currently in that position. Revelation 20 is where he has been for a thousand years. And he is released at the end of that time period. But it seems, and I'm not the only one that thinks this. Sometimes I think y'all think I just like go on the internet and find the wackiest thing I can find. Yeah? Y'all don't even know what's out there, trust me, because I do go find people so that I can kind of chuckle every once in a while. Not the only one that thinks this, but this seems to be the punishment for angelic beings who act outside of their realm, specifically who interbreed with humanity. They are put into a prison under guard awaiting judgment. And it was by means of the Spirit of Christ that Noah was the preacher of righteousness in his day. And remember what this is demonstrating. This is demonstrating that suffering for doing what is right is better. 
That's the, it's an illustration of what it means and what it looks like for suffering for what is doing right being better than suffering for doing what is wrong. And it's fairly clear the nature of what Noah suffered. How long did Noah preach? 120 years, right? That was the construction of the ark. How many people were with him? I think we're a small church. Seven others. Eight people total. Eight. He was a preacher of righteousness to his generation. Zero percent success rate outside of his family. You think that caused suffering? It's not directly applicable, I guess, but you know what the average pastoral tenure is in the United States? About three years. People get discouraged awfully fast. (laughs) People get discouraged, frustrated awfully fast. Noah preached righteousness to the world among his generation for 120 years, and every single one of them ended up under lock and key, now in prison. Every single one. Because they were disobedient, it says. They didn't believe the message that was given to them, the just for the unjust. It says, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. It's important phrasing, I think, for us to understand because we believe that God is not exercising patience, right? God is kind of monolithic. And he simply knows the beginning from the end. He's outside of time. He doesn't, he's not bothered by all of this. But Scripture demonstrates that God is patient and he is waiting. <laughs> yes, he is not bound by time, but he operates in consideration of beings that are. We perceive of God as demanding patience of us all the time, don't we? I just wish God would smack down my enemies. I just wish God would let me kick them in the teeth. I'll get this done. A couple of well-placed throat punches would fix this situation. Guys, right? Like you could just remediate the problem fairly quickly. God was patient and kept waiting in the days of Noah. It was God's patience. During the whole construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The the word there actually is huper. Um, Sometimes we, we think about it as just that Noah was being preserved from the water. Uh, Peter seems to view it a little differently. 
Yes, he was saved from the flood. Everyone else was wiped out by the flood. But there's a very real sense in which Noah's life, his preaching of righteousness and his family was preserved by the fact of the devastation that was done by the water, that the world was altered and he was saved from how the world was by what the world became, even in its devastation, that he was saved by means of the water itself. He was delivered, he and the seven others. Again, we we tend to think of ourselves as the ones who are waiting. And this is, I think, frequently why churches don't get a lot done. They, They feel like they're just waiting. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And they see that as not quite the same as accomplishing. need to recognize that it is, it's God who is being patient. He is being patient. And we need to understand, yes, that we're, we are to wait on his timing, but this is the opportunity that we have because of his patience to work out our purpose as choice aliens in the world and not get impatient with his patience. Have you ever felt like God needed a little, you know, come on, get moving? Yes? No? Anybody? God, judge the people. God, bless me. I'm ready. I've been suffering. I've been doing what is right. Remember, the blessing, the inheritance, the reward, that's ready and waiting. God's already defined that. You're not missing out on anything, Right? I think for sure, my, my three oldest kids, when we would send them to bed, thought for sure and certain that Priscilla and I would go to the circus without them every night. For years. They would not stay in their bed. To this day, if somebody gets a doorknob and just goes, doesn't quite open, it goes, rattle, 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 rattle. I nearly stroke out. Because of the, it's a PTSD thing, I think. Minor, of course. It sounds like one of those kids coming out one more time to check and make sure that we didn't go to the circus without them. Rattle, rattle, rattle. Just stay in bed. Stay in bed. Years of it. Guys, the circus is not going on without us. The reward is ready, waiting, reserved by a faithful God who has defined who we are, what our purpose is, and what our future is. So we need to obey. We need to obey and be faithful and serve where he has given us to serve, refusing to be impatient with his patience. And to embrace the sensation of suffering when we do what is right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. uh, And we do thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ died once for all. We know that we are unrighteous without him. 
And we thank you that he gave his life freely so that he would bring us to you. The gift that we have, the life that we possess, and the purpose in our lives that we possess because of him. We thank you for it. And through your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? We'll dismiss with a song. Cause I 